It was a little depressing this week to realize that we're coming up on the, uh, the 18th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center in New York City, which means that this incoming freshman class uh, was born the year the towers came down. So that depresses me. How am I that old? So I need to tell many of you for your first time here uh, about what happened in those days after the towers came down. It was amazing to watch the way people processed it. There were a handful of people that was like, you know what this is? This is God's judgment on America. We're now paying for all of our sins. While there were others that were said, no, actually what this is, is this just shows how evil they are and how good we are which wouldn't be interesting until you begin to realize that in both of those explanations of that horrible experience, there were stories at their root, believed plot lines that became the way in which people made sense of the tragedy and the chaos. We spent some time this summer sort of looking at the power that these stories have, um, not just on sort of a national or a cultural level, but on a personal level. And you can see it how often it will happen that the same event happening to two different people will be reacted to in entirely different ways. Let's take, for example, that two men lose their jobs from the same company. One of the men actually is spun out into deep anger and lashes out to everybody around him, while the other person sort of tailspins into a depression and self-blame. Why the two different reactions? Well, I would submit to you it's because the two of them are believing different stories about their life at any given time. You know, the first individual grew up being told he could do anything. So when things didn't go his way, he just assumed that he would be angry. The world hasn't been treating him the way in which they should. It's his circumstances that are the problem. But on the second hand, the other guy grew up never being affirmed for his self-worth at all. And so for him, it's just a firing that was a confirmation that all the the terrible things he thought he was were actually true. But take the next step with me, because what happens when an event in your story becomes so grand in scale, so totalizing in its scope, that it becomes almost the story of your life, the most interesting thing about you? You know, positively, I want you to think about that person that you all know, who it was a guy who had this extraordinarily uh, spectacular high school athletic life. You know that guy? And somehow he always tends to find a way to work the conversation over to his exploits when he was in high school. Those events become totalizing for us. But of course, they can be very dark also. I wonder if you've ever met or talked with someone who experienced the, the horror of childhood sexual abuse. So often what you find when you speak to these things is that you realize they begin to see everything in their life through the window of that event. That's what happens to us. They, they become kind of life events that are more than just their historical circumstances. Well, I say all this because Exodus would go on to become the story that framed the entire consciousness of these Hebrew people. These are real stories, real historical facts But they were so much more than that to the people of God. Exodus sort of becomes the the meta-narrative, if you will. The totalizing way of looking at everything else that would happen to them as the people of God from that time on. But of course, the cool thing is that we find is it actually was a story that God was telling. Ultimately, it was a story that was being told about God's big story for what he was going to do for the whole cosmos. And this is why time and time again, you get people in the Bible who would reference the events of the Exodus to understand what was going on in their lives. I mean, this wasn't just like stories to tell around a campfire. 
You know, it was the story of the salvation of their ancestors. It was the reason why they were something rather than being nothing. It was the essence of their connection with one another. It showed them their place in God's world. So we're doing a study this particular semester on what it means to be the people of God, this home in our hope, home, and healing language. And what we're going to see then is that the Bible, as you begin to read it and process it, wants for this story to become your story. The reason why God is gathering together a people, the Exodus is a salvation-defining story that echoes through the heart of every single person who knows Jesus as their Savior. That's what Exodus is. But it might surprise you this morning that that whole story begins in a story of enslavement and a story of suffering. This is the powerful notion that in many ways becomes the first mark, the first descriptor of what it means to be the people of God as we began as enslaved people. So what does that mean? Well, I'm going to throw out three thoughts to frame our passage this morning. Number one, the origins of our slavery. Number two, the nature of the slavery. And then finally, the hope that's in the slavery. Let's dive into this. Number one, the origins of the slavery. Look, the first thing that you get in this story is that God's people are oppressed and enslaved. And immediately you've got a question. How do you have the people of God together with enslaved? How how do those two things go together? I mean, if they're the people of God, uniquely chosen from all the nations in the world to uniquely carry out God's mission in the world, shouldn't they like be living the victorious Christian life or something? I mean, aren't they supposed to be sort of a living life easy and smooth? How do you find yourself in those kinds of dire straits? It's a perfectly natural question to ask. How could this happen if these people were here at God's direction? Now, obviously, the most superficial and kind of obvious answer to that question is what we get in verse 8, the opening verse of our passage. The simple idea is that there was a king that arose named Pharaoh who became threatened by this rather large uh, people group that was growing within his own borders, but who had themselves a very strong sense of personal identity. And the sort of geopolitical reality, that assume happens every day in this world. There's a minority that sort of has a strong identity that eventually gains some power and influence and becomes a threat to the people that are in power. That's what happens. The Egyptians must have thought to themselves, you know, these people have grown just a little too fast, a little too big for their own good. So that's kind of the bald historical explanation for what it is that happened. But the deeper question that had to be in the hearts of the Hebrew people was, how can we, the chosen people of God, find ourselves here? We were supposed to be this great nation. We've got Abraham and Isaac and and the people of God as our ancestry. And yet here we are suffering in the bonds of slavery. This is not the way my life was supposed to go. So you see that if you were a Jew during those days, you you had a very large cultural mythology surrounding this ancestor of yours by the name of Abraham. And many hundreds of years prior, God called Abraham and made these amazing promises to him. You see them all in Genesis chapter 15. And the first thing he comes and says to him, some good things like, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into a ton of people. And then he says, and all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. But then he adds something at the very end when he says, and your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not yours, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God just called a shot to Abraham hundreds of years before, which which is astounding if you think about it. The Hebrew slavery, Pharaoh's oppression, 
end up being due ultimately to God's permissive providential hand. He had been behind it all. Now look, you're not, ask, you're not an- listening this morning. <clears throat> if you're not asking the question, wait, wait, what? <laughs> Why in the world would God do that? Why would he allow his people to go through something like this? And you wouldn't be alone if you were asking that question. That question hung over the people of God all the way into the New Testament when you have the Apostle Paul picking it up in Romans chapter 9. Verse 17, it says this, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, you ready? That my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. There it is. God says, I want for the whole cosmos to be filled with the knowledge that I am the kind of God who saves from bondage. That's what's going on here. Now look, this is the first plank to sort of understanding how this story appeals to us because I think it's a perfectly natural question to ask. <laughs> Honestly, probably at multiple times in your life, how did I get here? Why is this happening to me? What, what did I do to deserve what God has let to happen to me? And the natural instinct in the midst of that is to blame God, isn't it? To point your finger at Him. And then suddenly you get to passages like Romans 9 and you're like, Indeed, it looks like God did have a hand in my present suffering. He is to blame. Look, there's a couple of things to consider here before you let this undo you. First of all is this. God's sovereign hand, even over the hard things that happen in life, is really only an uncomfortable truth if you dwell purely in the realm of philosophical. You know, we get really torn up about the whole, oh, God is sovereign and man is responsible debate that honestly, it almost never leads anywhere. But once you sort of move past that and you begin to consider, there's a personal application to this idea. Because it brings about the knowledge that though I don't know it and I can't see it, the suffering that I'm going through is not random. And it is powerfully encouraging in the midst of pain to say, this has a purpose, a Christian tells herself. God is getting glory for himself and he's using me as a part of that. That is sanity in the midst of pain, God's sovereignty. You fast forward to the New Testament and you have Jesus walking along in his journeys and coming across a man who had been born blind. And his disciples are sort of standing around him. He's like, hey, Jesus, I, I got a philosophical question for you. Who was it that sinned to make this guy blind? Uh, was it him or was it his parents? You remember Jesus' response? He said, it's neither. He said, it is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's the ultimate answer. The reason behind these historical events of the Exodus and the eventual enslaving of the children of Jacob was so that God could proclaim throughout the whole earth that he's a God who releases from bondage. That's the origin of the slavery. As hard as it is to swallow. But that begs the question, doesn't it? So we need to talk about that slavery again. What, what, What is that about? Point two, the nature of the slavery. What does it mean for us, though, to sort of deal with this idea of slavery? Well, simply stated, the Hebrews' bondage was intended to show that the whole creation, and every human soul included, is by nature in bondage. Everyone is infected with this. Look at verse 14, because every English translation unintentionally ends up kind of muting this point because of its translation. Because the same Hebrew word, um, avav, which we have translated uh, to serve as you do a master, it actually occurs 
over and over again. I saw one commentator who said, if you translated this just word for word, this is how the verse would read. And they made their lives bitter with serving in brick and mortar with every kind of serving. And with every kind of serving, they made them serve. You can't read it that way in English because it sounds silly, right? But you can't miss what the author is establishing. The book of Exodus is showing that part of what it means to be the people of God is the assertion that there is a serving instinct inside the motivational center of every single person. You've heard me say plenty of times by this time that the way in which everyone lives is they have to live for something. It can be a profession. It can be for your next promotion. It can be a family uh, uh, salvation. It can be a successful children, attention from the opposite sex, whatever. But our service to those things is not benign. I don't think anybody's going to disagree with Bob Dylan's premise, fundamental premise of life. You got to serve somebody. But what we rarely understand is that in the Bible's claim, this instinct to serve is so powerful that whatever you serve other than God, you actually come to be a slave to that thing. And verses 13 and 14 are just illustrating that all of our service comes with attachment. It comes, we quickly move into a relationship where the thing that we're serving, we're not making the decisions anymore. We're stuck in our service, which is another word for slavery. Look, we began this series last week by looking at this whole generation's philosophy of life that we called expressive individualism. We talked about how there really is no higher value for this up-and-coming generation than the idea of freedom. You know you're free when you're doing your own thing, when you've bucked all the influences in life. And maturity, of course, is defined by breaking yourself from any of the constraints that any authority might try to tell you who you are. Some people even cast Christian salvation in exactly those terms. But again, this is where you're going to see that that if you're going to associate yourself with the people of God, you will never be more peculiar than you would be in this regard. Because most of us, if we're under the age of 40, think that the word freedom means having no masters in life. But that's simply not true. You're a slave for whatever you live for. You cannot not serve something. I, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that in the Bible's calculus, Everything that flows out of your life is a result of this service instinct. And flow out of our lives, it does. And you see it in what comes out of the lives of these Jewish people. In other words, we're not just talking about an internal spiritual slavery. Because that internal dynamic has begun to sort of go external in the way in which they're living. I think you see it in three different ways. There is, first of all, a sense of political slavery that they're living in. Look, the Israelites were the immigrants. They they were the refugees of their day. But when a new leader rose up, they were discriminated against. Why? Because they were a threat to the establishment. You see the point. It's not only that God's people are enslaved to their service, but the people that are oppressing them are enslaved to their prejudice. They must have said things to themselves like we sometimes say. Well, I mean, if we let those people in, the way in which they want to come, they're going to change our way of life. We just want people to leave us alone, to stay in our way of doing things. I really, I honestly don't have very much education at all on the current immigration and refugee debate. But I do know that there's an association that Christians have with that kind of idea 
of knowing what it's like to stand underneath the people, both of which are oppressed, both of which are enslaved. Which leads me to the second one. They're under economic slavery as well. The Israelites were used to being, were used to be slave labor for the Egyptian construction projects. They were being exploited for the, by their masters for financial gain. Which, you know, as an aside, one of the things that's most extraordinary at watching sort of a, this kind of a political slavery, economic slavery, is how much money pays in, goes into the manifestation of oppression. I was reading an article this week that was talking about, about human trafficking being the number two organized crime in the world today. Human trafficking. Have you ever stopped such stuff? How do you sell a person? And of course, the world's answer is, I don't know, how much money do you have? Economic interest creates slavery like nobody's business, which means the third one, that is a social slavery. Pharaoh initiated a state-sponsored genocide by demanding to kill all of the male Hebrew babies. Can you imagine, by the way, what would have gone on psychologically in the life of a young mother? How she worries that the second that the doctor looks up and says, it's a boy, so that, life, that child, the life of that child is immediately in danger? How do, you, how do you recover from that? Now, look, why am I unpacking this the way in which I'm? Well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think oftentimes we have trouble in our world wondering whether the Bible is predominantly talking in these stories about a spiritual oppression kind of an inward struggle, or whether it's talking about a social oppression, you know? What is my mission in the world if I call myself a Christian? What am I being asked to be faithful to? Well, you've got two camps in this discussion, do you not? On the one hand, you have, I don't know, kind of evangelical types like ourselves, who say to themselves, actually, no, this, the, the oppression is really a spiritual oppression. It's like sin on the inside. That's what's really God's focusing on. But on the outside of any kind of physical oppression, we usually stay out of those conversations. On the other side, you've got a group of people that say, actually, and these are oftentimes people that have left the biblical gospel behind, who are saying, no, we're here to solely be here for social good, to bring about social justice. So which is it? To be frank with you, I, it, look, I'll say this. I always think it was very important to be honest as a tradition and, and if you're on the outside of Christianity this morning, kind of looking in, you're going, oh, what are these people about? We haven't done very well at this. There's a lot that we have to own from our history as, as the, 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 the theological tradition from which we come that looked at a lot of the things that were going on in the world around us, and we walked away from them. And the excuse that we used was that those things are spiritual. We deal with stuff that's spiritual. That stuff is material and political. We don't really feel like we got to talk about that. And oftentimes it was used to justify to justify actions that I just didn't want to go into places that made me uncomfortable. I, I want you to be honest. I want us to be honest with you. That comes to it from a lot of where we are. But the story of the Exodus is telling us that you can't separate those two things. As long as mankind is enslaved into sin, that enslavement is going to manifest itself in actual, physical, tangible realities that God is equally concerned with. We say that ministry is supposed to be ministry in word and deed. You got guys like James chapter 2 who says, uh, says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled. <laughs> Without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? See, James won't let you sort of spiritualize what God's God wants us to do. Both the internal and the external expression are God's concern. Alec Motier, uh, uh, 
commentator over Exodus says this. He says, God responded to all the dimensions of Israel's slavery. He didn't just free them from social, economic, political oppression and let them worship any God, but neither did he just free them spiritually without working to change their awful situation. And Christian, our mission is exactly the same. It's both. But there's a second reason why I'm fixated on this, and it's because you have to see how deeply complex the nature of our slavery goes. It's easy to read Exodus like it's you know, kind of a hero's tale. These oppressed people were saved, and they all went and lived happily ever after. But what's crazy about this story is as awful as these descriptions of this oppression and infanticide actually are, in the chapters to come, the children of Israel are actually going to long for the days of being back in Egypt. They're going to wish they could go back. That's a little bit more than just economic slavery. There's something going on inside. The wires got really crossed. And here's the point. The, the people of God are formed out of the soil of oppression. And that slavery, whether it's coming from without or within, has gotten deep to the bones you don't just wave a magic wand and relieve this kind of suffering. This one goes deep, deep into the psychological makeup of these people. And you see the effects of the slavery going on for years with these people. Do a quick skim of the Old Testament and see how the people of Israel did in leaving Egypt. And I hope you see the immediate application here because the Bible wants us to see our stories in this story. And it means, first of all, this. This is the first thing it means. You have not joined the people of God until you've come to terms with the brokenness of your own motivational center. We start with humility because you're not free. That's got to materialize in front of us. You know, the, the people around us oftentimes can see us enslaved, but we can't. You are your own worst judge. And so at least what it means is we've got to begin the process with humility. I, maybe you do have something to say to me. Maybe I am wrong. But secondly, I think it means that this is not going to be a quick fix. You know, our hearts, or what I'm calling our motivational centers, are so profoundly tied to our actions that only a radical humility is going to draw it out. And even then, I'm not sure we'll ever be able to look back and say, oh, well, you know, I conquered that. <clears throat> I'm over that particular thing. We don't get there. Now, there's a perpetual state of repentance that God's people live in that defines our union. So these Jewish people come and start to realize that this is why God's bringing them through what they're going through. Great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, in order to cut loose the bonds that bound them to Egypt, the sharp knife of affliction must be used. And Pharaoh, though he didn't know it, was God's instrument in weaning them from the Egyptian world. That's it. And helping them as his church take up their separate place in the wilderness. Man, we keep talking about that for forever. The origin of slavery, the nature of slavery. That's just our big toe in that. But I want to finish by showing you that there is some hope in this passage, the hope in our slavery. Because in as much as God's permissive will has allowed people to find themselves in the midst of slavery, he's actively working to change it. And exhibit A comes from these two women, these two random women, Shipra and Pua. <laughs> and here they are. Pharaoh gives them an evil, immoral order, and they refuse to follow it. Why? Look at verse 17 says, because they feared God. And God rewards their refusal. Look, this is the only time these two women get mentioned in the Bible. <laughs> Simple, faithful women that the world probably should have no reason 
to remember for their deeds. But yet here we are, thousands of years after talking about them. That's kind of cool. They're talking about them sitting around and scheming and plotting of how to bring justice to an unjust political regime. In other words, the application for us is, is that God is at work. Even in the midst of life's most incredible pain, we have the knowledge that he is at work. But the way in which he works is we rarely see it. You're not alone in your suffering. Because it's perfectly natural, isn't it? Then once you kind of get wind of this and you start to watch the news long enough, you, every now and then you'll get a fire in your belly. And you think to yourself, man, let's go start the next giant protest. Uh, you know, let, let, let's organize a, a revenue-draining boycott for that multinational corporation. Uh, let, let's look for, for the dramatic presentation that, that will wake the world up and bring about justice. And maybe those things have their place. But, you know, more times than not, in the Bible, it comes through these, these little bitty faithfulnesses. These tiny little things that no one is watching. That as they get played out over time, though no one is seeing what you're doing, no one's standing on the sidelines clapping for you for what you did. When you look at the entire trajectory of it, God is advancing his purposes in the little places. This is why the prophets would say, who is it that despises the day of small things? It's not a small thing. Tom Junid is a writer for Esquire magazine and got to interview um, Fred, Mr. Rogers, Rogers one time uh, at an, a promotional event. And apparently Mr. Rogers had come across a young boy in a wheelchair who had cerebral palsy. And as Mr. Rogers talked to him at the end of the conversation, he asked the boy, he said, would you mind praying for me? Well, the little boy in the wheelchair was, was you know, dumbfounded. I mean, he had lots of people pray for him, but nobody ever asked him to pray for them. And so the little boy looked and said, well, you know, Mr. Rogers, I think you're actually pretty close to God. So yeah, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. Because if you like me, then maybe I'm okay. Well, after the event happened, Junod came up to Rogers and kind of celebrated him for kind of being real clever about how he boosted the boy's self-esteem. That was a good move there, Fred. But he realized that Mr. Rogers didn't look at it that way at all. Here's what he said. He said, oh, heavens no, Tom. I didn't ask for his prayers for him. I, I asked for me. I asked him because I think that anyone who's gone through challenges like that must be very close to God. I asked him because I wanted his intercession. I think that Mr. Rogers understood where the primary action was in God's kingdom because it's almost always in the obscure and in the small and in the out of the way. When the people of God show up, it's not always with this big splash and a bunch of fireworks. Why? Because it's a story that God is telling, that it's his story. And that's the way he does it. But God raises up Pharaoh and leads his children through the slavery so that he can proclaim to the ends of the earth that only if God's love is the ultimate source of your joy, can you not be afraid of the things that are going to happen to you. Or you're only free if God is your master. Is that true of you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would lead us into that. Because, Father, so many of the cares of this world and the distractions of this world, that, that they tempt to define us in other ways. But we know that you're the one who calls us. You're the one who makes us who we are. 
And that means we've got to get humble. It also means that we've got to learn to look for you in the places where you said you found. It's in those tiny little places. Serving a group of people on Thursday nights who need benevolence. Helping in children's church with a little child who just bumped their knee. Father, maybe even uh, participating in a, in a missions trip to go someplace to see where God, your hand is at work in other places. Father, that's so small, it'll never make CNN or Fox News. But here we are. One, be faithful to what you would have us to do. Would you do that? Or we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.